0: Amen. I heard about uh, a trick the other day that producers use, movie producers, to sort of determine uh, what content they should cut out of a movie. Sometimes when you're an artist, you know, if you guys are artists, you, you get very attached to, to something you make, you know. And, and you have to ask yourself at times, like, is this something that should be pulled out of uh, this movie or this picture or whatever it is? So what producers do, well, sometimes they'll, they'll take their scene, their favorite scene, and they'll pull it out of the movie and then they'll watch the movie without the scene. And if the movie makes sense without the scene, then they know the scene can leave or should leave. It, what it does is it helps you to kind of see how important, how necessary is this particular scene. You know, every movie has um, the, the crucial scene in the story arc, the scene that kind of gives away the whole story. So if you guys have seen the movie Encanto, anybody in here seen the movie Encanto? Uh, nobody. Okay, Ryan has seen it good. I'll just talk to you. No one else is going to know what I'm talking about. Now, in the movie Encanto, there's a, a very crucial scene. It's the scene where Mariabelle, the main character, realizes that, in fact, what seemed like a curse, that she never got a gift, what seemed like she was going to destroy the family actually ended up being uh, the opposite. She was actually going to be the salvation of the family. She was actually going to be the one to, to bring the family back together and to, to get through the hard problems that they had. Another Disney movie, maybe, where you could see this would be um, Coco. Anybody? Coco? Anybody? Nobody. Wow. Okay. Five. Great. Six. Um, what? Are you, do you want me to talk to this side? Okay. Let me do that again. Coco. Anyone seen Coco? Yay. Good job. All right. Sweet. Okay. I'll just, I'll just preach this way. Hi, Amber. Um, so what, you have this, this moment where you realize that who you thought was the good guy ends up being the bad guy and who you thought was the bad guy ended up being the good guy and it changes the whole movie. And then you've got to go back and you've got to watch it again, right? Because that, that one scene was so crucial, it was so climactic, it changed the way that you viewed the whole, the whole movie. Now, this is true of the gospel. The gospel has multiple facets. It has multiple scenes, if you will, multiple things that make it good news. And sometimes what you need to do is you need to remove one of those facets and say, if we remove this, what are we left with? Now, one of those facets of the gospel is the resurrection, what we're here to celebrate Today. Now, maybe some of you guys don't go to church normally. Maybe you're kind of like, man, why is everybody here so excited about the resurrection? Why is that a big deal? Well, let's pull it out of the mix and see what would we lose if we lost it. How important, how crucial of a scene is the gospel or is the resurrection to the overall good news message that we believe in Christianity? Now, the disciples, many of you guys that come here normally, we we teach we're teaching through the book of Mark. We're gonna pause and we're gonna jump over to Luke for this morning. But um, as we've noticed in the book of Mark, the disciples, um, they're pretty thick, right? Like they don't really understand what's going on for most of the time that Jesus is interacting with them. He's trying to put these really huge truths in front of them. And a lot of times they're just kind of checked out. They're not understanding. They're tuned into their own frequencies. They're tuned into the world's thinking and, and, and not his thinking. So really, the disciples go from being kind of freshmen uh, when Jesus first calls them, not understanding anything, and then they graduate to becoming sophomores at one point. By the way, I, I, I learned today, or I learned this week, that sophomore is a, is a combination of two Greek words, sophos and moros. Sophos means wisdom, and moros means Moron, right? So, so sophomores are like this weird oddity where they're like smart and stupid at the same time. They're like, well, I've been in high school for a year so. I know some things, but you're really still an idiot, okay? So the, the disciples really, they, they graduate from freshmen to sophomorons. Um, and, and then this crazy thing happens in their senior year. This crazy moment happens, this catalytic moment that changes these guys forever. I mean, I can't overstate how different the disciples are before and after the resurrection. It was this huge um, landmark change in these guys. So we need to ask the question, what was it about the resurrection that transformed the disciples of Christ to being um, really a a confused, um, sophomoric uh, group of, of, of failures to being one of the most... Um, world-shaping, world-changing church-planting machines uh, that that we've ever seen, right? I mean, after the resurrection, everything changed. So what was it about the resurrection? Why was it so powerful? Why do we stop every year as Christians and celebrate this idea of the resurrection? I'm hoping this morning to help kind of frame out for you why Christians take the resurrection so seriously, or should take the resurrection so seriously, okay? So to do that, we're going to take a look at Luke's account of the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. Now, each gospel writer addresses the resurrection to some degree. Mark addresses it very little. Um, And each gospel writer includes certain material that's unique to their gospel. Luke, Dr. Luke, who was a highly educated academic, um, he went and he interviewed different people that were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and he compiled what he felt was a, uh, appropriate, what the Spirit would feel was an appropriate account for us to study this morning. Last year, we looked at John's account of the resurrection. This year, we're going to look at Dr. Luke's account of the resurrection. What I love about this material we're going to look at this morning is it's, it's so unique to Luke. We don't see it in the other stories, and it's so entertaining. It's so dramatic. It's a very, very interesting Bible to read. So let's start in verse 13 of Luke 24. It says this, That very day, which is Sunday, okay? That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So Luke, our, uh, uh, the author here, he zooms the lens in on these two disciples. Now, these aren't one of the 12 disciples. You may not realize this, but there, are, there were many disciples. There was the inner circle of the 12, and then there was an out, outer ring of disciples as well, men and women, uh, that followed Jesus. Um, this is two that we don't hear about anywhere else in the Scripture. But Luke introduces their story. Okay, now they're walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're discussing all these things that had happened. Well, what are all these things that had happened? Let me catch you up to speed on the timeline. There's this thing we call Easter week or Passion week. And, and, and if you're uh, sometimes in more traditional um, churches, you sort of have a thing every day that you celebrate. Let me, let me walk you through the timeline. The last week of Jesus' life is incredibly important, and the chronology uh, is pretty important as well. A week before the moment we're reading about in this text... Uh, is what we refer to as Palm Sunday. It was the moment where Jesus showed up in Jerusalem and entered into Jerusalem uh, through the Eastern Gate uh, and was greeted with a massive procession and parade of people laying down palm branches and going, Hazana, which means save now. And it seemed to the disciples and everybody that was around that this was the moment they'd been waiting for. At the Messiah, Jesus, who they hoped he would be, was going to enter into Jerusalem, and he was going to begin setting up his military administration. He was going to establish his cabinet with Peter and James and John, and he was going to decide who was going to be uh, you know, his right-hand person and who would be on his left hand. And, and, and this is very exciting for the disciples, and they really got everything they, they were hoping for as they're coming into Jerusalem. That was a week before. How many of you guys know that things didn't go the way they thought? Things didn't end up the way they thought. Monday, the next day, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he does the unthinkable. He starts throwing what seems like a divine temp, 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 temper tantrum. Temper tantrum. He starts flipping tables over, and he literally takes over the entire Temple Mount, which was the business business schema of the Sadducees, which were the modern, or really the gangsters of the first century. They they had this whole scheme, this whole money making scheme on the Temple, and Jesus comes in and basically takes these guys on. He causes a giant scene. It was very public. He takes over the whole Temple Mount for three days. And he begins preaching on the Temple Mount. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he's preaching. And as he's preaching, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are pulling out every last-ditch effort they can to try to unguard him, to try to defeat him philosophically, theologically. They finally realize that they aren't going to be able to get rid of Jesus any other way than death. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, they come together and they formulate a plan to get Jesus crucified. They come and they arrest him on Thursday night. In the middle of the night... The, the the guards, the temple guards come, and they, they arrest Jesus. Remember, Peter lops off Malchus's ear. That whole scene, Jesus is praying in the garden. He knows what's coming. Judas has betrayed him. They arrest Jesus, and they bring him in the middle of the night to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And this is an illegal trial. That's why they did it in the middle of the night. It was an illegal trial. They tried Jesus um, in the house of Caiaphas. Peter denies Christ, remember, three times before the morning, before the sunrise came, Peter's already denied Jesus. This is all happening on Thursday night. By Friday morning, Jesus is passed off to Pilate, who passes him to Herod, and passes him back to Pilate, who eventually gives the crowd the final say. They say, we want want Barabbas instead of Christ. We want the thief instead of Christ. Crucify him. And then within hours, Jesus is beaten, flogged, mocked, crown of thorns, nails through his hand nails through his feet lifted up on the cross the romans the romans were brutal and the way that they murdered people so this is all happening this is friday that jesus is crucified saturday we call it silent saturday it's the day where jesus is in the tomb it's the day where jesus is in the tomb see the disciples were they were entirely disillusioned by the way things went down a sunday ago they felt so hopeful this is it jesus is our guy He's our ticket to power. Rome's going to, they're going to flee. They're going to run. Israel's going to become a superpower again. Within a week, their guy, their Messiah is dead in a tomb. Failed. So what do they do? What do they do? I mean, the guy that we were following, he's gone. He's dead. He's, he's gone. It's been three days. It's Sunday now. And these two disciples do what all the other disciples do. They say, well, I guess we're just going to go home. They've been in Jerusalem for Passover. It's a p- pilgrimage. The Jews would all travel to Jerusalem. And they all say, okay, well, it's time to go home. So these two disciples, they start walking the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to their hometown, Emmaus. So it takes you about three hours to walk that path. And as they're walking, they're talking because that's what you would do in the ancient world. You would have your best conversations while you're walking. So verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together... Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is so interesting. So these two are walking down the road in parallel. And, and, you know, there's probably a caravan of people, a lot of people going back to their hometown from the pilgrimage of the Passover. And this strange man that they don't know sort of starts to merge and, and starts to listen to their conversation. He's kind of interesting. And he, he walks up and he says, hey, what, what are you guys talking about? Now, Luke lets us know that this is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, okay? Uh, The the, the one that came out of the grave, okay? Uh, But Jesus is keeping them from understanding who he is. It's a divine passive there, uh, which means that, that Jesus is blocking them from understanding who he is. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus, teacher of teacher, he wants to interact with these guys. He wants to understand where they're coming from, what they're thinking, what their understanding is of what has just taken place with the crucifixion. He said to them, verse 17, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Of course they're looking sad. These guys are devastated. Everything they were excited about failed. Their Messiah is dead and in the tomb. He's gone. Verse 18, Then one of them, named Cleopas, this is one of the two, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And this tells us something about just how public Jesus' crucifixion, just how public Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem really was. This wasn't a small event. All of Jerusalem, there would have been millions of people in Jerusalem for Passover, and most of them would have known intrinsically about this whole Jesus thing. It was very public, very popular. So they're stunned that this guy who's walking with them from Jerusalem doesn't have a clue about what's been going on. They're puzzled by this. So Jesus continues to to play dumb in verse 19. He said, What things they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now notice what they say. A man. Not the God-man. Not the Son of Man. They say that this Jesus... From Nazareth, Hicktown, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. What's so interesting about this verse is it tells us what the theological or the Christological, I should say, with the study of Christ, what the Christological position of the disciples was right after the crucifixion. What do they think Jesus is? He's just a man. Turns out Jesus couldn't handle Rome. Turns out Pilate and Herod and the the Pharisees were too much for Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, he's another prophet. See, if Jesus died, he's not God, he's not Messiah. And they've already deduced that, they've already understood that. So they've already landed on a new theological position. Three days ago they thought he's Messiah for sure. Now they're like, yeah, just another dead prophet. There's another dead prophet. 21, but we had hoped that he was one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. See, if it was the first day or the second day, he'd only be mostly dead uh, for you Princess Bride fans, right? But it's three days, so he's not mostly dead. He's all dead, right? That was the the three days was was how you would know someone was dead. No Princess Bride fans in here? (laughs) Okay, where you at? Come on, don't leave me hanging. Okay. Uh, they were at the tomb early in the morning, 23. When they did not find his body, they came back saying <clears throat> "They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So they're recounting the story to Jesus. They're saying, yes, yeah, some of our women from our group, uh, they went to the tomb early in the morning today, and, and, and the tomb was open, and the body was gone and then they said, we don't really believe them, but they said that two angels appeared to them and told them uh, that that he had risen or something, Uh, but all we know is the body's gone, and so to add insult to injury, not only is Jesus dead, somebody took his body, and they're just completely deflated. They're completely frustrated by this as they're catching up this stranger who we know is Jesus. Now, uh, it's, it's worth noting, by the way, just how skeptical these guys are they're not gullible. You know, the, the idea of resurrection was, was really foreign to the first century Jewish mind. Some of the arguments that people put forth against the resurrection is they say, well, you know, the resurrection was the wishful thinking of a group that was ultimately defeated when their Messiah died or when their, their person died. But the reality is the first century uh, Jew literally had no theological framework for a resurrected Messiah wasn't anywhere in their thought process. It was so foreign to their matrix. It was so outside of their their purview that that literally Jesus is going to have to show up physically and and explain it to them. What does that tell you? It tells you that we're talking about the, the resurrection. We're talking about rational men who expected there to be good evidence, and they were convinced by good evidence, and the resurrection wasn't something they thought up. It was something they simply responded to. Are you with me? 25. He said to them, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now that's so entertaining to me. You know, one second Jesus is playing dumb. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I don't have a clue. The next second he's like, You guys are foolish. Don't you know the the, the Messiah is the suffering servant that he has to suffer and go to the cross? And if it were me, I'd be like, I thought you didn't know. I thought you didn't know what was going on. All of a sudden you're an expert. Uh, Jesus begins to bring light and shed light um, on the reality of these guys' situation. 27, at the beginning, this is so cool, the beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus, from memory, it's not like they had Bibles open, they're walking down the road, Jesus, from memory, begins to give them a what we call a Christ-centered hermeneutic. This word here, interpreted, It comes from the Greek word that we get our word hermeneutic from. It's it's the interpretation. How do we decide how to apply and understand a particular verse? So Jesus introduces these guys to an entirely new way of reading the Old Testament that they were so familiar with. He begins to take them from Genesis 3, the Proto-Evangelion, where it was prophesied that the, the, the... Crush, uh, the, the head of the snake would be crushed, and into the ark of Noah, and to the Passover lamb, and to the parting of the Red Sea. And he says, "Listen, every single one of these events was pointing to and typifying the ultimate reality of them, which is Christ." And these guys are just blown away, as they're like, "Who is this guy?" Like a seminary professor just steps into their conversation, just starts lecturing, and you're just like, "Whoa." He's he's teaching them a Christ-centered hermeneutic. And what we learn from this as good uh, Christians is we learn how to read our Bibles, right? We learn that all of the Scripture is about who? Jesus. We look at the Bible through Jesus. He is the lens by which we interpret Scripture because he is ultimate reality. He is God in human flesh. We know God through Christ. So this is where we get this idea of looking at a story like the ark and realizing Jesus is the true ark, That when judgment comes and purification comes, that there is a place to be delivered from that, and it's Christ. All of these things in the Old Testament were pointing to him. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. I love this. He acted as if he were going further. Isn't Jesus so interesting in this passage? He's so playful. He's so human. He he, he pretends like he's going to keep walking he wants to see what they're going to do. Kind of reminds me. I was watching uh, the second old Star Wars movie, you know, uh, the one where Luke gets his hand cut off, ah! um, and, 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 and Luke Skywalker comes into the uh, into the swamp, and there's this kind of creepy little troll character there, and he's looking for Yoda, and, and Yoda's like playing dumb, right? It's like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna. But then, and then you start to realize, like, oh, he is Yoda. You know, he's so wise. He's like withholding his identity for a little bit so that he can see if Luke Skywalker is really worthy. You know, the, the Jesus is the he's the OG Yoda. Okay, I don't know if I can say that. It's probably disrespectful. But um, Jesus is the real deal here. I mean, he he withholds his identity for a moment in order to in order to interact with these guys and what they think Jesus actually is. It's super fascinating. It's super fascinating. So they drew near to the village, verse 28, and they were going. uh, He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. I mean, these guys can't imagine not continuing this conversation. They're literally having the most interesting conversation with the most interesting human, with the most intellectually savvy human, with the most theologically astute human that has ever lived. Can you imagine? And they're like, can we just keep talking? It's late. It's dark. I don't know where you're going, man. Why don't you just come in and have dinner with us? They can't imagine not having a continued encounter with Jesus here. And by the way, if you are not completely intrigued with Jesus, you haven't really met the real Jesus yet, (laughs) Because he is the most intriguing, the most interesting, the most powerful, the most uh, intellectual, insightful teacher that you will ever encounter. Because he is God, creator of all things. So 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it. And gave it to them. Now this is kind of strange. Um, You didn't do that unless it was your house. It'd be like me coming into your house, opening the fridge, grabbing some eggs, making an omelet. Okay, what's up with that? Jesus instantly usurps this position um, of priority in the house. He goes, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna break the bread here." These guys don't seem to be really worried about it. They're kind of just they're kind of just floored by this guy and his his intellect and his understanding. In thirty one, in that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And this is so cool. And he vanished from their sight. How cool is that? Jesus opens their eyes as he's breaking the bread, and then, phew, he's gone. Like, how cool is Jesus? Seriously, like, like, how, can we not, like how can we not worship him? Like, he, he is so cool. He's gone. And why is he gone? Why does he leave right then? You would think he would kind of want to talk to them now about the implications of the resurrection. Well, he's already told them everything they need to know. He's already given them the world's best Bible study. He's already walked them through the whole Old Testament. Now he just wants them to chew on it. He wants to see what they're going to do with this newfound reality of the resurrection. 33, or 32, pardon me. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture, Man, that's what believers feel when Jesus is declared, amen? Our hearts burn. We know it to be true. I've talked to so many people that they got saved because they were sitting there hearing about this Jesus and who he is, fully God, fully man, who he died for their sins, rose on the third day, and they're like, my heart was burning. I knew that was true, and I had to say yes. Amen. That is the heart of a believer. These guys are rethinking now their interaction with Jesus, they're like, man, we knew it as he was talking. It's like we knew something was different about this person that we were talking to 33 and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together and saying the lord has risen indeed you ever wonder where we get that whole thing we do on easter he is risen he is risen indeed it's right there they're testifying to a reality and what's the return we know. These guys run from seven miles from a mass to Jerusalem, and they're like bursting through the door with the other disciples, and they're like, did you know Jesus is resurrected? They're like, yep, we saw him too. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We confess. We agree. It's a beautiful thing. These guys are immediately greeted with fellowship. Fellowship is a commonality when we both confess the same thing. That's why we come here together, we sing songs together, we hear the word together, we interact together because when we confess the same realities, we have koinonia, we have fellowship, we have a bond, a unity that we believe Christ is risen. Amen? It's cool. It's why church exists. Church is way cooler than we realize. Now, 34, saying, The Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and now, or in how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Note that we'll come back. Thirty six. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself—this is so cool. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, "Peace to you." Jesus just walked through walls. He just appeared in front of them. I and mean, this, this is incredible. Here they are discussing, uh, you know, the fact that Jesus is alive, and all of a sudden there he is. You know, not to get too. Um, allegorical here, but when we start talking about Jesus, he shows up. Amen? They're talking about Jesus, and he shows up. I love that. I love that. The Spirit of God is where Christ is glorified. 37, they uh, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost or a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? You know, the sting of those words would hit them. He told them he was going to raise. You remember that? I mean, multiple times. He's like, guys, look, I'm going to suffer. Three days later, I'm going to come back. And they're like, they did not get it. So here he is. Hey, like, guys, remember what I told you? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Like when you tell your kid not to touch the stove, and you tell him and tell him and tell him, and then they finally touch it, and you go, hey, I told you. And they're like, oh, yeah. He's been trying to warn them. He's been trying to prepare them, and they just totally missed it. 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then he says this, he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me. See for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, I love that phrase, by the way, disbelieved for joy. <laughs> They're stunned. They can't believe it. They're disbelieving for joy. And were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? What a funny question. Would you expect Jesus to say that? Hey, guys, good to see you. Hey, what's uh, What's for dinner? I mean, I love it, right? It's just so real, so earthy, it's so human. Jesus is like, can I have some food? I've been in the tomb for three days. I'm hungry. in I, the King James said, I hath hunger, right? I hath great hunger. It doesn't really say that. Um, probably, King James, hath hunger. I don't know. Uh, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. You are witnesses of these things, and I behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Talking about Pentecost, the Spirit comes. So there's the text. There's the passage. There's the story. What an incredible encounter, isn't it? The Emmaus Road moment. What an incredible encounter that Luke records for us. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, quickly, I want to ask five questions. Or rather, I want to say, what would we lose if we were to remove the resurrection from reality. If we were to to say the resurrection never happened, what would we lose? And I'm going to suggest five things that we would lose. So if you're a note taker, you want to jot them down, I'll give them all right, right up front. If we lost the resurrection, we would lose number one, revelation. And I don't mean the book of revelation, I mean God's word, revelation. Number two, salvation. Number three, creation. Number four, relation, and five, mission. Let me just go through these quickly. And my my hope is here is to ensure in you, to to build in you a sense of thankfulness for why the resurrection is so incredibly important to you and to the gospel. So number one, if we lose the resurrection, we lose the word of God. We lose revelation. Look at 25 again. Take a closer look at some of these passages. Look at 25 again. Jesus appears to the two on the road, he says to them, "O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." Now this is an this is an interesting thing. You would probably just read right past it, but I want you to think about it for a minute. Think about it for a minute. Jesus says, "You guys are slow of heart to believe what? Not the evidence, not the testimony. You are slow of heart to believe in the scriptures." He's saying, you, you should know this. this. This has been the epicenter of Scripture this entire time. God's redemptive thread has had resurrection stitched into it from the beginning. You completely missed it. Look down at 45. It says, uh, they op- he opened their minds to understand what? The Scriptures. Jesus opened their minds. You would think it would say he opened their minds to understand the resurrection, Right? But what he did was he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, why am I bringing this up? Just a quick point here. Without the resurrection, this thing holds no water. Jesus wanted these guys to be rooted not just in an experiential reality, but in an eternal scriptural reality. Not just in a subjective experience, but in an objective word. He wanted them to see that the resurrection wasn't just something that these people felt or saw or experienced. It was something God had been planning all along. And here's the really good news about the resurrection. See, if Jesus climbed out of the grave, then whatever he said was true. And if whatever Jesus said was true, then all of the Bible is true because Jesus seemed to see it all as authoritative, didn't he? So we read our whole Bibles. We read it confidently. Why do we read it confidently? Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. If he is still in the grave, I don't really care what this thing has to say. I'm going to go do something else. But if he climbed out of the grave, then I'm going to teach this thing. I'm going to read this thing. I'm going to think about this thing. I'm going to let this thing shape me because Jesus said this was his word. And he gave the authority to his apostles to write down and record his sayings and the things that he did. And it matters. The resurrection gives validity and authority to the scriptures. It's so important. So if we lose the resurrection, number one, we lose revelation. Number two... If we lose the resurrection, we lose salvation. If we lose the resurrection, we lose salvation. Take a look at verse 26. Start in 25, actually. He He said to them, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? In other words, was it not important? Was it not imperative? Was it not crucial? Was it not critical that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? There's this dynamic combination of things that Jesus needs them to understand, that it was not just the suffering of Christ on the cross that was necessary, it was also the resurrection that was necessary. Why? Why both? Why do we need both? Why couldn't Jesus just have simply died and not rose? The answer is that Jesus' suffering on the cross, which we celebrated on Friday, if you were here, um, Jesus' suffering on the cross dealt with the payment for our sin. What does the resurrection deal with? The resurrection deals with the penalty for our sin, which is what? Death. The consequences of sin was death. So when Jesus was on the cross, he paid the sin payment for you. But yet, even though your sin payment was paid, death was still a reality. So the resurrection is obliterating all of sin's penalty. The resurrection is proof positive that Jesus not only paid for your sin, he overturned death by being risen again, by being born again of a new created reality. If Jesus didn't climb out of the grave, how do we know he really paid for our sins? I mean, it could have just been some theological, philosophical thing that was made up by the disciples. Jesus climbing out of the grave proves to us, gives us assurance that atonement has been paid, that you have been ransomed, that you are free, that you are adopted the resurrection is the proof positive that salvation is real. confidence would we have otherwise? Imagine I, I had cancer, and, 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 I, and, I, and I told you, you know what, I, I found a cure to cancer. And they would say, great, give it to yourself, and then publish your work, right? Because otherwise, how do we know you really found a cure? And then what if I said, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just happy with, of the fact that I thought of the cure. See, the, the cross without the resurrection is a cure without publishing. The cross without the resurrection means that we may not be at odds with a a wrathful God, but we're still dying. (laughs) Jesus fixed the implications of sin through the resurrection. Let me put it this way. The cross made the once for all payment for sin's debt, and the resurrection made the once for all proof of sin's death. Are you with me? I know this is theological, isn't it great? This is important. This is huge. This is earth-shaping. Okay? we got to think about these things. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, he says, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen, your faith is futile. Why? Because you're still in your sins. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Are you thankful for the resurrection? Amen. Okay. Number three, what do we lose If we lose the resurrection, we not only lose revelation and salvation, we lose lose creation. Creation. Let me ask you an interesting question. Why did Jesus have to come in human form? Why did Jesus have to come as a man, fully God, fully man? Why couldn't Jesus have stayed in heaven and and found a way to absorb the wrath of God and to deal with sin in the heavenly realm? Why did he need to come into, and as Eugene Peterson says, why did he need to move into the material universe, into the neighborhood of, of a human existence? Why was it important that he became physical? Here's another question. Why didn't Jesus become a man, die for the sins of the world, and then just stay in heaven as a spirit? Stay in heaven is God. I mean, why did he have to come back in a resurrected human body? Why is that crucial? Why is that important? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? It's a really important question to ask. What is Jesus doing when he comes back as a human? I want you to see this. Luke makes it very, very central to his account that we see the humanity and the physicality of Jesus. I want you to see it here. Look at 36. Let's read it again. 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Not floated among them. He stood among them and said to them, peace to you. 37, but they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit, okay, a floating soul, whatever. 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. What kind of creature has hands and feet? humans, right? He's human. He's physical, and he wants them to see this. He says that "That it is myself. Touch me. See, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have any food? What is Jesus trying to communicate to these guys? He's trying to communicate that he's physical, that he's been resurrected physical. Okay, why does that matter? Why is that important? Here's the reason. Here's the reason. Jesus' rescue mission, Jesus' rescue mission, was not simply uh, just to rescue the human soul. Jesus' rescue mission was for the whole solar system. This, this is something we don't talk about as much in church. For some reason, we talk about salvation, we talk about floating salvation, immaterial bank account somewhere where, where you've been given the righteousness of Christ, and that's very important. But the gospel is so much more than that. See, Jesus didn't just come to pay your sin debt. He came to recreate a new eternal physical reality. Jesus came to redeem the cosmos. You know, God's not done with creation. He has more in store for creation. And what he did in sending his son to become fully God and fully man was to create a really an ambassador between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. That in Christ, we now have peace between the kingdom, the realm of God, the spiritual realm, and the physical realm that he created. God is rescuing everything that's been shattered by the curse. Your soul was shattered by the curse. Your relationships were shattered by the curse. You know what else was shattered by the curse? Creation. Animals want to eat us. Storms want to kill us. Disease is after us creation it says in romans is groaning or pardon me in uh, yeah in romans 8 creation is groaning waiting for what waiting for christ to come and redeem his physical universe you're saying sam so what why does that matter why is that important well it matters because it means god is not finished yet with this world it means that that everything you love about this life is probably material it's probably physical you love your kids, you love your wife, you love your friends, you love your experiences, you love adventure, you love beauty, you love all of the physical things. God, God made those things. He's not done with them. Eternity with Christ is not floating on a cloud in immaterial land. Eternity with Christ is in a physical, eternal kingdom that will be set up in a new heavens and a new earth. Isn't that cool? Jesus, in the resurrection, is proving that he has forever reunited the sever between heaven and earth. It's so important. It's so powerful to understand that. Like a treaty between two countries brought together by a marriage, Jesus has married heaven and earth in himself back together. And in him, we will find a new Adam, a new progenitor, which is uh, the the technical term for the first, the first of a whole new human species. And we follow behind him. I just think it's exciting, super exciting. So we lose Revelation, we lose salvation, we lose creation. Fourthly, we lose relation. If we lose the resurrection, we lose relation. Let me unpack this. I want you to see in verse 35 something pivotal in this passage. Starting 33, they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in what? In the breaking of the of the bread. So remember I told you how weird it was Jesus comes to dinner with these guys and he sort of takes the bread himself and starts to break it? It's very interesting that it was in that moment that these guys realized who Jesus was. Why do you think that was? I think it, I think it was because the way Jesus broke the bread was so familiar to them. These guys just spent three years with Jesus. You know how many meals they had with him? You know how many times they watched those hands that they had seen that were familiar to them, those, those carpenter's hands, break the bread and hand it over. There was such a personal connection that they had with Jesus, and Jesus sustained that in his resurrection. He didn't leave that behind. He, didn't, he may have got an updated body, but it wasn't a new body. It was, it was an updated version of his old body. It was the one they were familiar with. It was the same Jesus they knew, and it was in the personal nature of breaking the bread that they connected the dots Jesus did this a few other times. Do you remember in John's account? Uh, he's, he's standing behind Mary who's just found the tomb open and she's weeping. She's so sad. She said, so, where, where is the body of my Lord, right? And Jesus is, again, kind of playing coy with her. He says, what are you crying about? She, she turns around. She thinks he's the gardener. She said, I don't know where they've taken the body. Did you take this, the body somewhere? And Jesus reveals who he is to her in one word. You remember what it was? Mary. Oh, she'd heard Jesus say her name so many times like that, hadn't she? How many times had Jesus in her company, this Jesus, her Lord, who she loved so much, how many times had he said her name in this endearing, soft, shepherd-like tone? How many times, and instantly as she hears that, she remembers. Just like the breaking of the bread. How many times have these guys watched Jesus break the bread? There's another one. Jesus, uh, the resurrected Jesus, is walking along the shore of Galilee, and the disciples are having some crummy luck fishing which seemed to be pretty normal for them. And, and, and Jesus, uh, playfully, again, they don't know who he is, he, he calls out, how's the fishing? Which was an inside joke. He's kind of poking fun at them. He's kind of like, hey, guys, remember we did this three years ago? You were terrible at fishing then, and I told you to throw the, the, the net on the other side, and they probably weren't terrible at fishing. But anyways, uh, it, it's, it's it's Jesus being personal. What's my point here? We need to recognize that Jesus coming back fully God, fully man, coming back in his resurrected human body means that the familiarity, the personality of Jesus that we read in the scriptures, that we've come to love, is now uh, forever the way we can relate with God. See, he's not some distant, fiery deity. He's revealed himself through the Logos, the word, the language of God, which his son Jesus in his humanity so we see God, of course, as holy, 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 divine. We see him as all-powerful, but we also see him through the lens of the person that we know personally, which is Jesus. Isn't that great? He became our, Hebrews says, our eternal high priest, that when we pray, we can pray to Jesus, this person that we know, that we know loves us, that's kind to us. So thankful. Without the, resurre- without the resurrection, Jesus would be a distant memory, but instead, he's a physical reality. Right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, in his... His physical body. You know, when Jesus went to heaven, he took his humanity with him. He brought it. There's a piece of him that will forever relate to us. It's kind of like when you, uh, you, know, you talk to your kids and you have that moment where you, you, you remember what it was like to be five. And you're like, you know, buddy, I, I remember what it was like to be five. Jesus in heaven, he's not distant. He's not unaware. He's so, he's so aware of what it's like to walk in the shoes. You're walking in. He brought that with him. It's just an incredible thing. Without the resurrection, lastly, we also lose mission. Look at one more thing and then we'll be done. Verse 33. I want you to see what happens here. They rose that same hour. Now remember, these guys just discovered that Jesus was who he said he was. They get up, they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now you would just read right over that, right? What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. It's nighttime. And Jerusalem is seven miles uphill. These guys realize that Jesus is who he says he is. Remember, he reveals and then vanishes. What do they do? They don't go to bed. They get up and run seven miles in the dark. Why? Because they have to witness to someone that their Lord has been resurrected. I love that. Because without the resurrection, there really is no movement of the church. There really is no gospel proclamation. There really is no uh, salvation to the nations. It's in the resurrection that we have to share it. That's why we're evangelicals. Evangelical is from the the, the root word evangel, which is euangelion, the good news. We're, We're here to share the good news that we have to share it when we experience it. I love that these guys instantly, the first thing that they go to do is to go proclaim. And you know what else they go to do? They go to have fellowship. That's what Christians do. We talk about the gospel, and then we get together with other Christians and eat food. Isn't it great? <laughs> That's what these guys do, right? They, 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 they see Jesus as Lord. They're like, we got to go tell somebody, and then we're going to go have some food. Because we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus is on the throne. Of course, there's work to do, but our work is in declaring the reality that Jesus has been victorious. That's what the Christian life really is. Now, let me just remind you of what I've said here. Because of the resurrection, we have great confidence in God's word. Because he is who he said he is, we believe what he said. Because of the resurrection, we have complete assurance that uh, that for followers of Christ, we are forgiven and sealed. We have this great proof that truly salvation has been accomplished and applied. Because of the resurrection, we have a newer and truer relationship with creation. It's incredible. Because of the resurrection, we have this real tangible and personal relationship with God. And because of the resurrection, we have this incredibly fulfilling mission. Do you see now why it's so important? Do you see what we lose if you take away the resurrection? Do you see why Christians geek out on this every year? It's the best news. It's the scene in the movie that makes everything make sense. It's the scene in the movie where when you see it, you got to go back and watch it. you got to go, wow, this changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. And my prayer for you and for me this week is that we would have our own Emmaus moment. That's what this is. This, This passage we looked at, it's the road to Emmaus moment. It's the moment where you come face to face with the undeniable reality that Jesus is who he said he was. He proved it and that you have to respond accordingly to that resurrection. That would be my heart. That would be my desire. That would be my prayer for us, that we would have a a Emmaus moment. You know, your soul has always known that this is true. But your body has only ever known death. Your, Your soul was created for eternality. It was created to live forever. Your body has been decomposing since the minute you were born. You know within your heart of hearts, some of you uh, don't buy into this, some of you don't believe in this. I just want you to know that you know in your soul that without resurrection, life is pointless. It's pointless. Right? Well, all we know is death. This world is consumed with death. This creation is, is just as a blanket of layers and layers of death all around us. Resurrection is the, the beautiful reality that that blanket has been lifted. For all those who are in Christ, death is not our end. Death is the beginning of a more real humanity. Death is the beginning of a more real creation. How exciting is that? Without the resurrection, there is no good news. You cannot remove it. So Christians, I would just encourage you this week as you're worshiping the Lord throughout your day and throughout your life, remember the resurrection. Thank the Lord for the resurrection. Say, thank Jesus. Thank you so much that you you did what you did and you did it so well. Amen. Why don't you guys stand with me? We're gonna sing a couple more songs. Father in heaven, thank you that you did do what you said you would do. That you fulfilled what the scriptures said you would do. That you came, that you suffered for us in our place. And you didn't stay in the grave. You proved that you did what you said you did. And now we have great assurance and we have so much to celebrate. And I pray like these two guys on the road to Mass that we would just be so excited to tell of what we've seen and what we've experienced. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.